Father, just uh, would pray that we uh, remember Terry this Wednesday night. Um, God, we just pray that you would instill within us, God, a heart that our, our next day is not guaranteed. Um, but we, uh, we could easily, God, pass away in our sleep. God, it's only your grace that sustains us. And uh, I pray you'd, you'd teach us, oh God, the, the things that you would have for us. God, I pray also just as we just open your word now, what a precious thing it is as we looked at in prayer meeting, just the, the one is blessed who delights in the law of the Lord and on his law meditates day and night. Father, may we know that blessing, uh, God, just delighting in your word. I, I pray that your spirit would come, that we would not resist your Holy Spirit God, that we would not resist your word now, but it would become savory and a delight to us as much as the weakness of myself to communicate your word. Uh, I pray that you would overcome that and that you would be powerful indeed and and teach us what each of us need to know today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, three and a half years ago at Rock Valley Bible Church, um, during October of 2017, we celebrated something which we called Reformation Month. And uh, you remember why we celebrated Reformation Month? Any kids, you remember that? Yes, go ahead, Austin. <laughs> Martin Luther, what did he do? On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the theses, his 95 theses, on the door of the Wittenberg Church um, in Germany. And uh, we, we dedicated that month to really celebrate uh, just the Reformation because it is the Protestant Reformation that has been the seed for us why we stand here today as a Bible-believing church. We embrace fully the, the trusting and the cries of the Reformation, sola scriptura, to look to Scripture alone determining what we believe and how we live, not to the decrees of men or to the tradition of the church we come to God sola fide on the, on the basis of faith alone and not by our works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's only by God's mercy that we come. We come sola gratia. The, the only reason we come to God in the first place is God's grace in our life, making us born new, changing us, opening our eyes, opening our ears. So those Christians, only through Christ alone that we come to God, not through priests or rituals of the church, soli deo gloria. We live our lives to the glory of God alone, not the praises of men. And so we embrace the Protestant Reformation as uh, everything that we stand for, for sure. Um, but it's interesting that October, 17, October 31st, 1517, to us it might be clear, like that was the watershed moment. That was the, that was the, the kicking it off, that everything else like, transpired from there. And, and we recognize that day only in hindsight, because history is 2020 only in hindsight. But I'm not sure Martin Luther really understood what was going on on that day. Um, but it was in that day that Martin Luther put his foot down or his nail in the door, if you will, signifying he was willing to stand against the entire Roman Catholic Church and argue for the truth of Scripture over and against tra- traditions and corruptions of the church. But there was another event that took place in the Reformation that may have been just as significant as this one. Is there another event that comes to mind at all? Maybe a kid, you see it there? When Martin Luther stood before the council. Do you know when he stood before the council and made that famous Here I Stand speech? 
It was April 18th, 1521. So that means today is what? 500 years exactly to the day that Martin Luther stood there at the Diet of Worms to respond to those who accused him. Laid out on the table for him were 25 books or articles or pamphlets that he had written, and the authorities challenged him to recant his writings. Now, you've got to remember, this is the authority of the church. I mean, this is the, the, the highest authority, really, in, in the land, able to kill him, um, able right there on the spot. And uh, Martin Luther, actually on April 17th, pleaded a day. And so in his weakness, he pleaded a day. But that next day came back on April 18th. And here's what he said with fear and trembling, standing before the council. He says, these works are mine, but unless I'm convinced by scripture and by plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And with those words, Martin Luther was declared a heretic, an enemy of the Church of Rome. His works were ordered to be burned, and Martin Luther literally ran for his life out of uh, worms. And on his travels back home to Wittenberg, he was kidnapped. I'm not sure if you, you remember the story or not, but some armed horsemen fell upon him, his traveling party, and Martin Luther was pulled out of his wagon, and he was placed on a horse and, and rode away. And it turned out that these kidnappers were his friends who were trying to protect Martin Luther, staging this kidnapping so that nobody in uh, Germany would know exactly where he was. Not even the king wanted to know where he was. Um, but he was fully aware. He wanted him to be protected for sure. Uh, and so they, they, uh, he was protected. He went to the Wartburg Castle. And there at Wartburg, he really did three things. He grew out his beard. And he uh, grew out his hair. And he uh, went by another name, Hunker, Junker George. Hunker Georg, maybe, is, is how to say it. But there he is with a beard. And I tell you, if I had a haircut like that, I think I'd be uh, growing out my hair as well, is what, what he did. But there he was in the castle, translated scriptures from Latin into German, giving his fellow Germans the word of God uh, in their own language, which really helped from a grassroots level to, to spread spiritual truths as people could see that and understand that. Now, so why do I tell the story of Martin Luther to you this day? Well, it's 500 years to the day when he said, here I stand, I can do no other. And it's interesting, it was at 4 p.m. when he said that. And so in Germany, we're, we're like almost right to the moment 500 years later. But I tell you that story because there are parallels to our text this morning. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. Uh, in this chapter, we see Stephen, the preacher, the reformer, if you will, holding to the gospel, being charged with heresy, standing before the council, asked, being asked to defend himself. And when Stephen finishes his defense, he's murdered by the mob as a heretic. And thus he became the first Christian martyr. Martin Luther escaped. Stephen did not. And Acts chapter 7 tells a story of his sermon and his death. It all came about because of his boldness to be a witness for Jesus. And uh, his example is really what the book of Acts is calling us to. It's calling us to be witnesses. You, how many times have you seen this slide? 
Every sermon that I've preached in the book of Acts, you see this slide, because this is, this is the, the cadence, this is the, the pounding thing that keeps coming. Be my witnesses, be my witnesses, is what Jesus says, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And he calls us to do that with boldness, like Martin Luther did, like Stephen did. And there are times where your boldness will cost you. I mean, there have been occasions in, in my life when uh, the gospel had been bold and have damaged relationships as a result of it. Not so much in how I said things, but in what was said. It's the gospel causing a division because the gospel is offensive. The truth of the gospel is offensive to people. Do you guys know what I'm talking about at all? In fact, I remember one time I had a good friend in college. This was earlier in our marriage. And he went to ministry, into ministry as well. And uh, so here were two spiritual people, if you will, and uh, longing to serve Jesus, if you will. But his Jesus is different than my Jesus. And uh, I I went to this man's wedding, and we had his wife from out of town over to dinner. He and his wife for dinner, and discussion about the church and, and the scriptures and the gospels became so contentious. I've hardly spoken to him since, just because of really standing for the gospel. It's not about good works, not about being a good person. It's about Christ and Him crucified. See, being a witness of Christ is, is costly. It'll, it'll cost relationships. It'll, it'll stir animosity. And I can think of others I've had a relationship with, and yet Jesus got spoken of by my mouth, and that's brought a division that wasn't there before because I've been bold for Jesus. And I trust you know what that's about. That's what Acts calls us to do, is to be witnesses, to be bold for Christ. And it will cost you. It'll cost division. As Jesus even prophesied, I I set father against son and father-in-law against daughter-in-law and brother against sister, right? There's a a way the truth. He says, I didn't come to bring peace. I brought a sword. Now, he does bring peace for sure, but there's also a sword that he brings with the gospel. And uh, sometimes when you're you're bold, when you are a witness, it'll cost you relationships. Sometimes it'll cost your job, perhaps. For Martin Luther, it meant his exile. And for Stephen, it meant his death. So let's dig into Stephen's sermon. My, my message this morning is entitled Stephen's Sermon Part 4. We're going to finish Stephen's sermon. We're not going to look at his death because I want to spend some time next week thinking about martyrdom. And so we'll think about the first Christian martyr next week. But we will get through verse 53 and there is, there is a lot here. Uh, now if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that this passage is pretty complex. Um, the, the, the key to this chapter and to understanding Stephen is preaching is found in chapter 6. Uh, Verses 13 and 14, when the charges that came against Stephen was this, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. And we've heard him say, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Stephen was accused of two things, speaking against the temple and the law. And uh, really, everything that Stephen then spoke relates back to this, about the temple or the holy place or the law, the, the customs of Moses. And that is, if you think about it, that's his, uh, against the religious traditions of the day. The, the, the traditions of the Jews, right, were, were with the, the temple. I mean, everything the Jews held tightly was their religious traditions, just like Martin Luther. When he was combating the, those in Rome, it was about the external religious traditions of the day. Uh, but the Jews, it's all about where worship must take place and how you need to bring your sacrifices to the priests and live everything according to the law of Moses in, in every detail. 
And with Stephen, the preaching of the gospel really shattered those beliefs. He just believed what Jesus said. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's not through the temple you come to the Father. It's not through the sacrifice you come to the Father. It has implications on the temple. It has implications upon the law of Moses. There's no need for temple sacrifices or for the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. And it comes with Martin Luther, right? The Roman Catholic Church of his day focused on the externals. In Luther's day, the church was busy building these great cathedrals on the backs of the peasants. Worship, they said, must take place in these cathedrals if you really want to be right with God. And also, you need to come to the priest. You need to get the host, the sacrificed Jesus. But Martin Luther was attacking some of those things. And when you attack some core elements of one's religion, sparks begin to fly And when you begin to point out unbiblical practices in the lives of others, right, discussion ramps up and there is some hostility and heat. And that's exactly what we see in our text, beginning in verse 44. But before we get there, I just want to catch you up to speed. I want to review Stephen's sermon for us because all his thoughts, all his sermon is is centered around these two thoughts. God's work is not confined to the temple. And the people of Israel have never kept the law. I mean, those are things, right? God is not confined to communicate to us in Jerusalem, in that holy place. And you all have, have always forsaken the law. So Stephen begins his sermon by mentioning Abraham in verses 2 through 7, who was called from Mesopotamia a long way from Jerusalem. He was brought into the promised land. But when he was brought there, he didn't dwell in Jerusalem where the holy place was. He never received any inheritance in the land, not even a foot's length. Here is the mighty Abraham never experienced the holy place in his life, but God was working in his life. And then Stephen transitions 8 through 17 to the patriarchs. They spent some time in the promised land, but they were exiled off to Egypt, right? uh, um, really spent their days in Egypt, if you will. But God was working in their lives to bring them to Egypt to save their lives. So he might bring them back again. And then came Moses, the, the Savior of Israel, in verses 17 to 22, speaks about his birth. He's born in Egypt, and God worked wonderfully in his life to save him from death as an infant. You remember the story about Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter out bathing by the Nile, and there was the, the Moses placed in the basket among the reeds, and she adopted him as her own son. That was the salvation of Moses, to save him from dying otherwise. And all that happened far from the holy place. And that's the point of Stephen trying to drive home. You put so much prominence in this temple, this, this one place in Jerusalem, but God, God in the birth of Moses was working, clear out in Egypt. And, and even in his exile, when, when he was led away to the land of Midian, as verses 23 through 29 speak about, he was far from Jerusalem. God was working his life, blessing him with two sons, Gershom and Eleazar. And, and then Stephen mentions Moses calling in verses 30 through 34. You remember this, right? The Lord appeared to him in the burning bush, right? God's presence so much so that he said, take off the sandals on your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. This is way out in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. This isn't Jerusalem. This isn't the holy place. There are other places that are holy. It's, it's holy where God is, in other words. And then last week, we looked at the rejection of Moses and, and um, the one to whom the Jews really lifted high and really exalted. Here was, was Moses. This is the one who gave them the law and yet thoroughly rejected by his contemporaries. Uh, you, got, you guys think of him so highly, and you ought, right? Because he gave us the law. But chapter 7 and verse 39 says this, Our fathers refused to obey him, but they thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. 
So when Stephen is accused of speaking against the law, he simply says this, well, you've never kept the law in the first place. He says, in the days of Moses, they didn't keep the law. They rejected Moses. And even he's going to end his sermon. If you look at verse 53, um, he says, uh, verse 51, as your fathers did, so do you. You don't keep the law either. In fact, even look at the prophets, verse 42 and 43, the, verse 43 particularly, right? You took up the tent of Moloch, this uh, child sacrificing requirement God, and they turned to Rephan, the sun god. And, and things have never changed. What was true in the days of Moses was true in the days of the prophets, was true in the days of Stephen. It's how Stephen ends the sermon. As your fathers did, so do you. And so now he comes then to talk about our text. Verse 44, ramping up until the great confrontation of verse 51 through 53. But here we go, 44. So in contrast to the tent that they took up, verse 43, the sinful tent... Uh, again, Stephen goes back to this theme of, of God's presence. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses direct him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And then the turn, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Well, my first point this morning, which is Stephen's seventh point, is this, is the tent. Uh, sometimes this tent is called the tabernacle. <clears throat> it's, a, it's just a, a tent where they worshipped. You can see that mentioned right there in verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses, direct him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. This tent here in verse 44 is, is where Israel worshipped the true God in their days of wandering in the wilderness. This, this was truly God's presence in this tent. They wandered all around. It wasn't in Jerusalem. It was wandering all around. And God had told Moses how to build it. And he saw fit to build it exactly as God had prescribed on the mountain. You can read all about Exodus 26 and 27 and uh, 25, 26 and 27. And at the center of this tent, you can just see, see it there. I just got a little picture for you in case you don't understand or remember the, the, the tabernacle. You got this little building surrounded by this fence. That little building has really two rooms. The, the first room's called the holy place. The second room's called the holy of holy place. And the holy of holies, the 15 foot square room 15 feet long 15 feet wide 15 feet tall and right there is where the ark of the covenant is where sacrifices were offered where the the priests would enter only once a year on the day of atonement to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people and then extend eastward to the rest of the building it's two times more of that 15 feet by 30 feet it's called the holy place you had the lampstand, the table of showbread and you had the altar of incense and the the priests would routinely go into this room to worship 
to uh, keep the candles lit and to restore the bread every Sabbath. Um, But that was the the little room. And then surrounding that, there was a fence, 75 feet wide and 150 feet long. And this basically was a courtyard. And this courtyard was the bronze altar, which you can see just right there um, where where the priests are. That's where all the sacrifices were. That's where all the burning took place. Just right there in the tent of meeting. That was the tent of meeting. That's the tent of witness. It's where the people of Israel worshipped. And it was portable. I mean, all those, those poles and those, those fabrics were all taken up and, and moved all around the wilderness. Right? And, and it, it was a tent the Levitical, the, the, the Levites carried wherever God would, would lead them next. And there was no permanent place. Sometimes it would be in one place for a day. Sometimes it would be a place for a week. Sometimes it would be a place for a month. But it would always be picked up and moved around. Like, God can be worshipped anywhere in the wilderness you can. And that's Stephen's point in the message. Right? When Moses instructed, according to the way the people are to worship, it was by design a, a movable structure that you can worship any place, anywhere in the vast wilderness that Israel wandered. Well, when they finally took the land, they actually took this tent with them. Verse 45 speaks about taking the land. Our fathers, in turn, <clears throat> brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. That is to say, this tent was the crucial way of worshiping God. Indeed, they had it in the wilderness and they brought it into the promised land. Um, sure, it was a, a temporary structure, but it wasn't just to be used in the wilderness. Like once they got the land, OK, now it's different. No, they got the land and they still worship in this temporary place. Now, be it when they came in the promised land, there's no reason to like move it around from place to place. So it initially was in Gilgal for a little bit. Uh, but once the conquest was all done, it remained in Shiloh for almost 400 years. And then David got this idea about building a permanent structure for Lord. That's what we call the temple. And that's what Stephen talks about in verse 46, which is my second point. Stephen's eighth point this morning it says this. David found favor in the sight of God, and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Indeed, God, David was a man after God's heart. God saw that, and God said that he would do all his will. And uh, one day, David was in his house, and he was just sort of thinking about God, and thinking about his worship, and thinking about this tent of what they had. And uh, he, he said to Nathan the prophet, his buddy, he said this, he says, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark dwells in a tent. You know, I got this nice house, but God has this shabby house. Right? I, I'm living here, but he's living in tent city. And so the implication was we need to build a structure for him. And it sounded, Nathan, like a good idea. And uh, sure, now we're settled in land and we've, we've got some relative peace. And sure, go ahead, David, go for it and uh, build that house. Nathan said, particularly 2 Samuel 7, verse 3 says, go do all that's in your heart. For the Lord is with you. And then we read 2 Samuel 7, 4 through 7. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I was brought up from the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd the people of Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Right? In other words, God comes to David and says, do you think this is a problem? 
right? Do you want to like do me a favor in building me a house? My dwelling has been in a tent. That's where I've met with the people of God some 400 years. And frankly, that's good enough for me, God says. I've never said you need to build me a permanent place. I'm just fine. The people of Israel can meet me in the tent. Really huge application for us when you just even think about, about that. God's blessed us at Rock Valley Bible Church with this wonderful building which to worship in, right? Um, but we don't need this building. I mean, think about the history of Rock Valley Bible Church, just a quick history lesson. For the first 10 years of our existence, we didn't have a building. We rented a building at Rockford Christian High School. We met every Sunday morning for a decade. Yeah, it was a lot of work setting up chairs Saturday night oftentimes for Sunday morning worship uh, services. But surely God was pleased with us worshiping him in a rental facility. Pictures of students along the wall. Good-looking students, by the way. Jody was one of them along the wall because she'd gone to that school, and it was a big stumbling block whether she'd go and worship in a place where her picture's over there. But it works, right? There's there's temporary places, and it helped. What's interesting about Rock Valley Bible Church, it helped to create this culture that that, that the church isn't a building, but the church is a people. And we know that, right? The church is not a, 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 here's here's the church, here's the steeple, here, here are all the people. That's what the, the church is about. And, and really it helped us in our early days to, to set a culture of ministry about people and not about building. And uh, helped us to press ministry in the homes. We didn't have a church permanent building where we could have a memorial service some Wednesday night. We just didn't have that. Or a Good Friday service or Christmas Eve service. There would be a fellowship outside of Sunday morning. It had to be in the homes. And it helped us a church to be... Not to be church-centric, but to be home-centric and to be people-centric. That's why we have small groups in the homes, and hopefully we'll start that up again with COVID vaccines coming more and more. But I would say this, with 10 years in a building, um, some of that may have been reduced. Maybe some of you never remember our nomadic days um, when youth group used to be in homes and had some Bible training times in my office in my home or evening gatherings, right? Different places and different homes. And I think there's, there's a good perspective of this is that God is equally delighted wherever God's people gather and that we don't need a building. A building certainly is convenient, but we don't need it. The church is far more about the people than it is about a building. And that's really exactly the error that the people whom Stephen was preaching to have. For them, worship was all about a building. It was all about a temple. It was all about that's where you had to do it. That's where worship had to take place. In Jerusalem, on that spot, there was no other place. And so when Stephen was preaching against the holy place, to them it was anathema. And uh, when Stephen was talking about the temple being destroyed, they brought him in for, for questioning. Now, it's interesting here. God is not opposed to a, a permanent place of building. A permanent place of worship. God is not opposed to building. Those are they're perfectly fine, right? But when it comes dominant, as it did the culture of the Jews, it is wrong. But it's interesting. We see in Second Samuel seven, after what I quoted in verses eight and following, basically he said, uh, "David, um, I've never asked for a building, but it, it's okay. But you're not going to build it. You're a man of war. Solomon, your son, is going to build it, and uh, that's exactly what we get in verse forty-seven. We see, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. And I just put up there a picture of the house. Uh, This is an artistic rendering. We don't know exactly what it looked like because it was destroyed uh, a couple times. Um, It was destroyed by Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar came along, and then Herod rebuilt it, and that one was destroyed in A.D. 70. 
as well. But this is something a little bit like what it, what, what it was like. And it was grand, it was glorious. First Kings chapter 6 and 7 tells about it. And Solomon spared no expense. It was beautiful. It was overladen with gold. It was stunning. In fact, when the queen of Sheba came to Solomon, she saw everything that Solomon had built and she was overwhelmed. First Kings 10.5 says that there was no more breath in her. Just so in awe of this wonderful building that Solomon had built. But then Stephen gets to his point. Look at verse 48. Yes, Solomon built this wonderful temple. And yes, it's a great place. Yes, it's a place to worship the Lord. Yet, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? It's, it's a great Old Testament quote. It comes from the very last chapter of the book of Isaiah, which speaks of the world as it will be when the, all the world is coming to worship the Lord. And verses 1 and 2 of, of Isaiah 66 tells us that God's throne is in heaven. It, it's not on earth. In fact, the earth is merely a footstool for God that God himself has made. See, God is so big, we, we can't even hope to build a building big enough to house God. And Israel knew this. It's interesting, at the, the dedication of this Solomonic temple, that Solomon says in 1 Kings 8, gives this big, long prayer about this temple. And in the midst of it, he says this. He says, will God, 1 Kings eight twenty seven, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So Solomon knew full well, right? He built this house. It was grand and glorious. And yet God, even the highest heavens, can't hold God. And Israel knew this. But they lost their way. They held this holy place in Jerusalem was the place of worship. They'd missed it, right? Forget the fact, it's interesting here, forget the fact that Israel, for the first thousand years of its existence, didn't worship in a temple at Jerusalem. Abraham was born around 2000 B.C., called all the Mesopotamia, come all the patriarchs, right? They're not even placed. Only when Moses came along, 1400 B.C., did he even build a place, a, a, a thing for worship, this tabernacle. And that was for another 400 years. So along when David comes along, 1000 B.C., from Abraham until David, Israel's been worshiping the Lord just fine without a building and without a place. And yet somehow the tradition of these men in Israel came to regard this place in Jerusalem as somehow the place where God must be worshipped. And Stephen's confronting them in their sermon. This is, this is not right. It's not true. And this confrontation gets very direct in the last three verses of the sermon, which is the last point of my message this morning. I'm simply calling it the confrontation. We've seen the tent, we've seen the temple, and now the confrontation and it's almost as if he just, he just spins right here and goes right at it. Maybe he discerned what was on their minds. Maybe he discerned that they were getting a little impatient. And so he, he said, I've got to finish this thing really fast. He says this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Right In these verses, right, Stephen really takes the bull by horns and really then confronts them 
with uh, their perspective and their attitude. The confronting sin straight on. And we've seen this already in the book of Acts. So if you look at chapter 2 and verse 36, this is Peter at the end of his sermon on that day of Pentecost. He says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's pointing right at them saying, You crucified this man and He's the one who's exalted at the right hand of God. Confrontation straight on. We see a a little bit less confrontation in chapter 4 and verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, but has become the cornerstone. So not so much even saying that you killed him, but more just saying you rejected the chief stone, but he is now the cornerstone. But again, in chapter 5 and verse 30, when when Peter's preaching before the, the council, he says, we must obey God rather than men. He says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. I just say this point forward, you're in sin. You have killed this Messiah confronting sin. And in and, and the conf- confrontation here, he, he comes to d- various different ways. He first hits their heart. If you look at verse 51, he hits their heart. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Speaks to them about being stiff-necked. When we think about being stiff-necked, right, we think about one of those collars. I don't even know. What are, what are they called, Brian? A collar? A C-collar. Okay, so it's around your neck, right? You're like this, right? That's what we think about. And I think it's a good illustration because someone like this can't what? They, 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 they can't bow low to worship the Lord. And that's the idea here. Whether that's a picture they had in mind or not it's a picture that we can have in mind it's a common phrase that they use these people are are stiff-necked they, they can't bow down right they're unwilling to bow down their hearts are wrong he says here not only are they, they stiff-necked but they're uncircumcised in heart and ears that is right the circumcision used in a metaphorical way like it's often used in the old testament as well right circumcise your heart right cleanse it make it open make it pure make make it clean Right? God tells us to worship the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but they weren't. They were hard in their hearts and hard in their ears. They, they wouldn't hear. And boy, you start talking to someone about how they're hard in their hearts, and you can see the, the response coming back to heart. I, I remember confronting a man one time just talking about how, how I can see his heart is against our church, is against Rock Valley Bible Church, and he instantly, how can you judge my heart? Like, just that much. I was like, whoa. I'm just reading what you're posting online and I can see how against things you are. And he's just like all offensive. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. But th- you start confronting someone's heart like that and their heart will be right there because they're resisting the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's giving right love, joy, and peace, right? They're resisting what the Holy Spirit is saying regarding truth and their heart are against it. You know, example of a good heart, we, we went over in our prayer meeting this morning from Psalm 1. Right? The man is blessed who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. Just with a soft heart, right? loving the Lord and loving what he says and accepting his correction. But instead, these people, according to Isaiah's prophecies, these people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's exactly true of these people. Right? They, they were religious people. You, you, can't, you can't forget that. These weren't... Um, these weren't unreligious, unchurch-going people. These were people who were in the church, who were in the Jewish community, who prized the temple, who prized their system. And these were the ones who were stiff-necked. Their heart was, was wrong. Their heart was far from God, despite what their mouth was saying. 
We see their heart confronted. We also see their history confronted. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? He says, okay, wait, here, let's, how about a little quiz time? You, you think about all your fathers. You think about all the prophets. Which of them did your fathers not persecute? And the answer is, not a one. All the prophets who came got persecuted. This is exactly what, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37. When he was weeping and wailing over the sin of Jerusalem, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. Jerusalem had this reputation of being the, the prophet-killing city. You know, say a, a visitor comes from Arabia or something, says, oh, where, where's that prophet-killing city again? Oh, it's Jerusalem. Why don't you go there? Jerusalem is a place that stones the prophets sent to her. In, in, earlier, Jesus says this, Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. This is God's, Jesus' perspective about what he's done with Israel. And you kill and crucify, and some you'll flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So he's just he's just saying this from A to Z, from Abel to Zechariah, you've killed the prophets who've come to you. And even here, he's prophesying more and more of righteous men that you're going to have. We're going to send these to you to preach and you're going to kill them and stone them. And Stephen is a fulfillment of of Matthew chapter 23 and verse of 34. And in fact, it's interesting, killing Jesus was just one in a long line of prophets who had faced a similar similar line. And the example proves, right, the example of Jesus proves that they're just like their fathers. In fact, if you look here, it's very interesting in uh, verse 52. This is the first mention that Stephen says of Jesus. First sighting of Jesus is right here in verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? See, they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. If, if the prophets would even announce this righteous one is coming, the Messiah, put your hope in this one, they killed him. They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. But these people of Jesus' generation killed, they betrayed and murdered this righteous one. Here's the first mention of Jesus. He's saying that not, not only have your fathers killed the prophets, but you've killed the righteous one. You've killed the Messiah. Not only your heart's bad, your history is bad, but your hearing is bad too. Uh, look at verse 53. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You received the laws delivered by angels. That is, they had a disposition here that they were, they were ready to keep the law. They were ready to receive the law. Oh, how they, they love the law. And yet they didn't keep it. The problem here is a problem of hearing. They received the law, but they were dull of hearing. They, they didn't hear rightly. They, they, yes, it came into their mouth or it came into their minds, but, but they didn't hear it. It's interesting that that word, when you think about the Shema, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Uh, the Lord is our God. The Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord with God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This word hear really is, a, is another way of saying obey. Hear, O Israel, right? Obey, O Israel. Right? That which you hear, you ought to, to follow up with and you ought to believe and obey. James gives the exhortation later uh, to the diaspora, right? To Jewish people. He said, don't, don't just be hearers of the word, but he says what? Be doers of the word. And their problem here is that they, they knew the scriptures, 
right? And they profess to do them, but they're all just whitewashed tombs, all on the outside. They were dull of hearing. So not only their hearts are bad, their history is bad, their, their hearing was bad. They received it, right? It's this great law, right? They love Moses, but they did not keep it. Let me just close with uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. Maybe you know that verse, maybe you don't. It says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What's one of the biggest ways to be persecuted? Is to speak up with the gospel. Is to, as we have been pounding, to be my witness for Jesus. It's one of the biggest ways to be persecuted. If anyone wants to live godly in Christ Jesus, he will be persecuted. If anyone wants to live godly in Christ Jesus, he will be a witness He'll be a confronting witness that will receive some persecution. Now, our persecution is, is going to be less than Stephen's. I told you last week, I was looking for an example of someone who preached and then was taken right down by those who heard and, and killed him. And, and those numbers of history are, are slim and few. But like Martin Luther, right, maybe goes into exile for a time. Or like Pastor Samuel Land was taken into prison, a, a prison war camp like I talked about um, last week. Or, or maybe, maybe taken and then tried and eventually killed. As we talk about martyrs next week, we're going to consider those who have been bold and who die for the faith. And, and we may not die for um, proclaiming Jesus, but we certainly will be hated, especially in our political climate today, that, that tolerates everything except the one who says... Um, Jesus is the only way. That's not tolerated, and you'll receive some persecution if you make Jesus an issue. And I just encourage you to, just like these disciples did, these apostles, you killed him. And so even be thinking about how you can, by God's grace, measure how it is that you can point out sin in others, leading them to Jesus, and yet being willing to face the consequences that doesn't happen in your life. So let me pray. Father, I would pray, God, that we would understand that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That uh, this gospel is not loved by the world. It is misunderstood and it is hated. So much so they crucified the Lord of glory. And uh, a disciple is not above his master. If they hated the master, um, they'll hate the disciple as well. And so, God, I pray we give no reason in our lives for people to hate us. Um, as Stephen here, he had, is it called, a face of an angel? It says in the end of chapter 6. God, he had a, a lovely dis, um, disposition. It seemed like he was gracious, slowly teaching them about what it means that the, that the temple is not the place of worship anymore. It's Jesus and his sacrifice. How the law has never been kept. They can lift it as high as they want, but they've never kept it before. God, it only got his death. And so, God, we, we will face far less than that, but I pray we'd be willing to face less than that. God, just to be witnesses for you and seeing others come to, to know the, the Savior, the grace and knowledge of Christ. God, so build us up. Help us to delight in your word so that your word comes out of our mouth as we speak with people. Give us opportunities this week, even, God, that would be, um, would be your words strong yet gracious, confronting and yet kind, giving people the opportunity to believe and trust in Jesus where all our sins can be forgiven simply by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So we pray you'd strengthen us this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.